0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the Liz, our Wellbeing show. Now, we know that strong and healthy relationships with the people we love, whether it be our partner, our family, our friends or colleagues, have a huge impact on our well-being. As John Donne once said, no man or woman, for that matter, is an island. And I couldn't agree more. We depend on each other and we can't go that journey alone. And that's why I'm so delighted to be joined today by David Bradford, a senior lecturer at Stanford Business School, because he is an expert in maximising our relationships. The research on this topic prompted a burning question What does it take to achieve high performance? And all the evidence pointed back to strong relationships. Not only do they improve our well being and our health, but it seems strong relationships also help us achieve our goals in life. Now today, David and his partner teach a much-loved interpersonal dynamics module at Stanford Business School, a module that's become fondly known by the students as the touchy-feely course. And it's consistently one of the school's most popular offerings, and it teaches students to forge strong connections and become better managers of people. But more than that, David and Carol, in their research, hope to prepare the students for fruitful and fulfilled friendships and relationships for the rest of their lives. We have just had a very enlightening chat about their new book, Connect?, building exceptional relationships with family, friends, and colleagues. There is so much that we can learn from David. So I do hope that we will all leave today's show inspired to renew and revitalize our most important relationships. I know that I did. And don't forget, if you'd like to watch our chat today, the video podcast is available on YouTube. And as always, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram after the show. So without further ado, let's hear it from the man himself, David Bradford. So David, a really warm welcome onto my podcast here. I know that we're going to have the most fascinating chat. You have just done so much and have so much life experience and putting it into a new book is just so very timely, isn't it? Talking about relationships now. It
1: really is. Yes, we need it more than ever.
0: Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to the study of psychology when you were younger?
1: I was always interested in that and um, so I... Did my undergraduate in psychology and sociology, and my uh, I, I was always interested in how people work together and don't work together. So the focus has been and <laughs> small group and uh, the problems we have and the opportunities.
0: Yeah, and you were specifically studying relationships?
1: Yes, yes. And part of the training I had was in small group behavior, which was the source of the uh, Stanford uh, interpersonal dynamics course.
0: Yeah, now that is fascinating. I, I want to quiz you about that because your course at Stanford is just so, so popular and it's been nicknamed the touchy feely course, which I think is amazing. <laughs> uh,
1: it, named by the students, of course, not by the administration. Yes, it's a very popular course. Uh, 85% of the students sign up for it, it's an elective. But what's most <laughs> is the effect of the students that they define the experience as uh, life-changing, transformational, and also rewarding our comments by alumni. One always wonders whether any of the material sticks and we hear alumni say, I use this all the time. It helps me in my job or it helps me in my marriage or relation with my kids. So it seems to have a wide application and a lasting application.
0: Fantastic. When students come in to do it, how long is the program and, and what kind of changes do you see in them as they go through it?
1: It's a 10-week program. Uh, that's, we're on a term system, on the quarter system. And um, when they go into the course, they're a little perplexed. They've heard about the course. Uh, what we worry about is when their friends say, you need this course. So we get a little bit of re- initial resistance <laughs> in terms of that. And it's a very, uh, it's different than any other course. We don't use cases. I do a mineral of lecturing. Uh, we don't do simulation. It's in a sense very simple. We put, there are 36 students in each section, three 12-person groups. The groups meet for four hours a week. And the purpose of the group is to have people look at their interaction and get feedback from each other. So it's quite strange the first week or two because they're not quite sure what's going on, but then they really get into it.
0: That's really interesting. How important then is that first impression if we're going to be building friendships and, and, well, business partnerships?
1: It's very important. As one WAG said, we only have one chance for a first impression, but also what's equally important is what we do that follows up. And so often our interactions are at a superficial level where we may talk about politics at the most or sports or the latest movie we've seen. And the whole question is, how can you deepen it so it's more meaningful and each of us can share what's important to us, not what we think should be socially nice to say.
0: Yeah, you've got to be quite brave to do that, though, haven't you?
1: It is challenging because the fear we have is, uh, if I share something, will you judge me? Uh, Will you start to see me in a negative way? And unfortunately, what that gets people into is to think if I'm really to be accepted and attractive and a leader, I have to pretend to be something I'm not. And a lot of people do a lot of spitting, not just on Facebook, but also interpersonally. And the exciting thing about the course is the students over time, gradually, but increasingly, show more of themselves. And uh, they get validated for who they really are. So not infrequently a person will say, well, we were in a finance class together and I really didn't like you. But now that I've really gotten to know you, I find you more interesting. You're a person I'd want to work with and so on. And I think that this is not that we haphazardly just show everything about ourselves. We have to be careful. But the more we can be ourselves, I think the more interesting we are, the more attractive we are. But that is a risk.
0: I think that's actually very encouraging. I know a lot of people worry about that first impression. They might go for a job interview or for a blind date or something, and they just think, oh, my goodness, I completely messed that up. You know, I gave completely the wrong impression, and I don't know what they thought of me. But that is actually hopeful, that we can rebuild ourselves.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, you know been a long time since I've been on a date, but I am constantly having first impressions, is that often in that interaction, if we can quickly move from the sort of social niceties to what is really going on, so um, it can be maybe on that first date to say, uh, this is probably a little tense for both of us, uh, drops a level of honesty and conveys that I really uh, would like to know you as a person and not just this image.
0: Well, you've obviously got lots of good experience with relationships. You actually wrote the book with your wife, is that right?
1: No, that's not. Uh, my, uh, I wrote it with a colleague, uh, and uh, Carol had had taught the course for 17 years. And um, what's interesting is we got a call a little over four years ago from an editor at Random House, Penguin Random House who asked about writing this book. So I approached Carol, and uh, we had been very good colleagues. So, uh, no, Carol's married to Andy, and I'm married to Eva. Ah, uh, to so
0: Eva, and, uh, we yes.
1: Can make, keep that distinction.
0: <laughs> Forgive me, but you're ke- clearly an expert <laughs> in managing good long term relationships. What kind of habits do you think tend to get in the way of building healthy relationships? What, what, what goes wrong so often?
1: Well, I think there's, a, there's, there's, there's many things, of course, and um, it varies with the individual. I think that two major things, and they're related. One is we tend to avoid conflict. We tend to avoid difficulties. And we hope it goes away, but it often doesn't go away. But even more than that, what I find and happens in this course and has happened certainly with Eva and myself, that the more we can face it with the goal not of attacking and blaming the other, but of seeing this as there's something wrong we need to work on. So can we face a difficulty and can we persist? It's it's not something that is easy to to go through. So for example, we we use the analogy of you're want to cross a stream and it's sort of muddy, and you want to get to the other bank, you want to get to the end of a to a good relationship, and you carefully walk at the rocks to not get mud on your boots, but the rocks run out, and you're faced with, do I persist and wade through the mud? to get to the upper shore, or do I turn around? And so often we turn around and we say, well, we just agree to disagree. That doesn't resolve anything. Or we push it under the rug, and it's a messy process. But can we persist with the goal of, let's make this better? Do you have any helpful
0: advice on managing conflict? I think so many of us who've been perhaps in a lockdown situation, we're seeing certainly here in the UK an increasing number of divorces and relationship issues with people just having to be side by side for so long and and, and tensions are heightened. Is there any better way to to try and resolve conflict and to say, you know, how, how do we best be critical? Because, you know, there are things that annoy us and, and that we want to resolve, whether it's a personal relationship or a work relationship. You know, how can we do that without perhaps offending the other person or making the situation worse? I think so many of us ignore it because we're worried that it would just escalate.
1: Yes, so that's and it often does escalate. And it escalates because we move into blame and attacking. So um, this is going to be a little bit of a digression, but this is a crucial concept and the notion of how could I give behavioral feedback in a way that the other person can hear and doesn't become so defensive that they retaliate or totally shut down. And to understand that we have to, we say, stick with your reality. And there's actually, interpersonally, three realities. So, Liz, there's, if we're talking about you and I, for example, there's my intentions, my motives. That's my reality. I engage in certain behaviors. I'm talking, I have nonverbal cues and so on. The behavior is a second reality that both you and I know. But the third reality is the impact of my behavior on you. I don't know that, and I need that to be effective. The trouble is, if you give me feedback, you often don't stick with your reality. So I want you to imagine a tennis net between the first and the second reality. You can't play in the other person's back court, but most feedback is over the net, we say. So for example, we say to somebody, well, you just want to dominate. Well, I don't know what you want. Or you just want to show how smart you are. I don't know your motives. And it's those statements which cause defensiveness and escalation. So the answer is, can I stick with my reality? So let's say that uh, I tend to interrupt a lot. And uh, let's say that I did that three times with you and you were starting to feel annoyed one of the reactions, one of your reality, is how do you feel? You feel annoyed, you might feel distance, you might feel less motivated to engage. If you stick with your reality, it's indisputable. Right. So if you were to say, David, when you interrupt me, I really find it annoying. Now that's indisputable. I can't say, no you don't, (laughs) or I'm over your net and uh, so we need to stick with our reality but we tend to get into blame and make attributions of the other's intentions or motives and that's what causes problems yeah
0: I I have heard that that you know the best way to to combat somebody you know who's being I don't know perhaps you're considering them being a bit too aggressive and and they would be very defensive if you accuse, accuse them of that but you could say actually the way you're talking to me makes me feel slightly apprehensive or nervous about continuing yes, this conversation. Yes. And that's absolutely right. You then kind of own that situation because to your point, they they don't know how you feel. So it's it, it's not something that will start an argument because they can't say you don't feel that because you do and they've got no right to, to query it. <laughs> that's
1: right. Uh, this is why we say, we say feedback is a gift. Because I need to know the impact of my behavior in order to be effective. If I don't know, I'm shooting in the dark. And you don't hit the target when you shoot in the dark.
0: That's a really good point. Thinking about relationships at work now, the whole work landscape has changed so much over the years. How have you seen or have you seen the structure of relationships at work changing since you started your research?
1: Yes, partially the nature of work has changed. We're much more interdependent with other people. Uh, we have to influence people we can't control, uh, our peers. We also want to influence our boss. We think we have control over direct reports, but um, you can order compliance, but you can't order commitment. Right. And so relationships are really crucial, not with everybody in the organization, but with those that we're interdependent mm. with. And we need to be able to build trust. You may not be my best friend. We may not go out for a pint of beer afterwards, but we have to work together. And I need to be clear with you about what I need. I need to understand your world so that I don't unnecessarily impose my needs on you. We need to resolve the difficulties that are inevitable in any work relationship, any interpersonal Mm -hmm. relationship. So people are learning that this is important. And I think Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence has really legitimized where he shows that emotional IQ predicts success more than intellectual IQ. So I think the nature of work has changed, and I think we're realizing the importance of yeah. that.
0: I'm really pleased that you you mentioned those words because I'm hearing more about this um, IQ in relation to EQ, the emotional, what? What does the Q stand for there? Mm-hmm. Emotional quote. Emotional quotient, quotient ah, okay. Those. So is that something that is as an employer, for example, should they be looking at EQ as, with as much importance as somebody's IQ?
1: Yes, I think uh, it's crucial. We try to pick that up in a interview, but interviews I always say is a mutual con game. The boss is trying to, or the hiring is trying to show how wonderful this is. And I'm trying to show that I'm the perfect employee. So it's hard to get into how we really are. Mm-hmm. But can we pick up cues? About, do they have the interpersonal skills? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be something to try to find out from people who've worked with them before and so on. No, this is very, very important. And, and what we tend to do is we tend to focus too much on their technical knowledge, which is important, but that often doesn't differentiate applicants.
0: Yeah. Now, I remember talking to a senior um, recruitment person uh, and they were saying that they don't really look so much at somebody's technical expertise and qualifications. They look at how they think. Because as they said, we can train them to
1: do the job, Mm -hmm. but we can't train them to think in a certain way. And the thinking is not just intellectual problem solving, but it's also, can I think about how I can relate to somebody who's different from me, who has different training, who has a different way of getting work done. That also requires thinking Mm. and emotional thinking. Mm.
0: Are there some simple tips then that employers you know particularly bosses can perhaps take away so they can learn to be better leaders using this?
1: Well, in essence, they not only need to be aware of do their employees have interpersonal emotional skills, but they also model. They build the sort of climate that they want. So if they want their direct reports to be more open and honest, mm. The question is how open and honest are they? So if they have to pretend that they they have all the answers, that there are no problems, the direct report is going to pick up that sort of cue and say, I've got to act the same way. Mm. So if I want my direct report to come in and say, "Um, you know, I've got some problems here, I need some help, the boss also has to convey, I, the boss, don't have all the answers, but that we together can resolve it. So modeling is very important, building the sort of climate you want.
0: That's really interesting. And on the other side of the coin, can better work relationships make better employees then?
1: Yes, because the same process of giving and receiving feedback to resolve issues is the same process by which I Mm learn. So what has always amazed me is that in an organization, Everybody else walks around having crucial knowledge about you. They know what you do well. They know how how you can improve. And yet we keep that back Mm. because we don't know how to share Mm. it. And we've actually done some work in organizations where on a regular basis, four times a year, people sit down and we separate this from the performance appraisal where we start to share that knowledge. And I can say, these are three things that you do well. Here's three areas in which I think you can improve on. Now, this has to be given with a desire of helping you improve. I'm not shooting you down. I'm not trying to make you look bad. But I, as a colleague, am committed to your development and you to mine. Yeah.
0: So that's really, I guess, putting into the spotlight the need for feedback as well and Mm -hmm. Do we need to set kind of careful boundaries
1: within that? Well, at Stanford, we say feedback is a gift. If I can find out how I impact other people, it gives me a choice. I don't have to accept the feedback, but I need to know the impact I have because that gives me choices. Now, the, the problem is most people don't know how to give behavioral feedback. They're over the net all the time. And they wonder why there's resistance, why there's defensiveness. But if out of caring, I can say, "Hey, you're doing some stuff that's hurting you," then it builds the relationship and increases your competence.
0: That is kind of taking quite a risk, isn't it? Having those conversations, you know. I mean, how important is is that opening up, at that sense of vulnerability, really?
1: Yes, in and in essence. You don't go over to a stranger and say something like that. But um, you in essence can, if you stick with your reality, you can often say things you don't think you could. So let me tell you a story. Uh, Some time ago, I was asked by a CEO of a medium-sized company to, to do some work with them. And I remember the first meeting I I tend to be a relatively open person. And I walked into the building, and I guess uh, meeting the receptionist and so on, and I was finding myself being a little tense. So I met with a CEO, and we'd been talking about 20 minutes. And the CEO said, I don't know what's wrong with people around here. They just uh, don't speak up. They're very cautious. Uh, what's, What's the matter with this generation? And I said, John, I don't know what's going on in this organization, but I got to tell you about me. I'm usually quite open, but I find myself now being very careful about what I say and what I don't say. I I usually don't do that. I don't know what's going on, but I got to tell you what's happening to me." And he rocked back in his chair and he said, that's what other people say. So I didn't know him, I didn't know what he does, but you have to understand yourself. So we have the image that all of us have two antennae. One antennae is about myself. How am I feeling? What's going on for me? What are my needs? The other antennae is being sensitive to what might be going on for you. Mm. Are you frowning? Are you seeming to be a little distracted? Do you seem um, uh, quite excited about what's going on? And it's having these two antennae talk to each other that can allow us to have more open relationships. And But I need to understand myself, and often people don't know what they feel. They don't know what goes on inside of them. So what is interesting in the book, we have an appendix which lists, has long lists of feelings and emotions and we make a small, uh, short copy of that and we give it to the students. And they often have to look down when we say, how are you feeling? And they look down and they look down, well, I guess I'm feeling upset. So we need to be able to develop that first antennae as well as the second antennae.
0: Absolutely fascinating, I love that.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify.
0: Now, I think all of us would admit that most relationships, wherever they take place, at home or at work, can't be plain sailing all of the time. Um, What is the role of conflict in a relationship? Does it have a positivity at all?
1: Yes, it's absolutely positive, if handled well. Conflict for me is a sign that something is going wrong. So let me try another image. Uh, Let's assume that you drive to work. Your goal is to get from home to work. But as you drive along, the steering's a little loose. The brakes don't seem to quite catch quite as well, and the wheels seem to swerve a little bit. Well, if we avoid that, uh, we're going to end up in a wreck. Mm -hmm. Instead, we see that sign something needs to be done. So if we have a conflict, that's a sign that something in our relationship isn't going well can we use that as a way to correct it furthermore if my orientation is to make this relationship better you and you know that then you know i'm committed to you and i'm committed to us mm-hmm. and therefore if i raise staying on my side of that this may be a difficult conversation it may be a hard conversation it may be a conversation that can't be solved in one discussion but again it's back to my notion of persistence. If we can see that and see what we want to produce, conflict not only improves the situation, but strengthens the relationship.
0: Yeah. That is just so wise. And I think, you know, in our in our personal and our family relationships, it's natural over a course of so many years for people to change and to grow over time. So how do we then make sure that we can stay close and also give them some space? At the same time,
1: (laughs) yes, and in essence, um, we have to hold Mm -hmm. the value of individual growth and uh, and not hold the other person to how they were before or how we wanted them to be. Such growth, in a sense, does strain the relationship, Mm -hmm. but can we use to explore? Can I say to Eva, my wife? what's going on here? And she may say, um, David, you tend to want to have the answers. we got to talk about this. In fact, I remember early in our marriage, I tended to make a lot of the decisions because that was my image of how husbands men ought to be. And Eva was willing to go along because she, in a sense, always worried about being blamed if you made the wrong decision. But that was starting to feel heavy after about six or seven years on my shoulders, all of this responsibility. And I remember talking with Eve and saying, we've got to redefine this. And she mm-hmm. said, you're changing the rules. And I said, I've got to. Wow. And we had a long discussion about ways that um, I tend to take things on that I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hope that she would do stuff um, wasn't an easy discussion, but it was an intimate discussion. Yeah, because if we talk about ourselves, that's a form of intimacy.
0: Yeah. Do you think that there are people that we are destined to have relationships? You know, our relationships, our personal ones, fated, or is it much more practical than that? Can we kind of engineer them?
1: Well, I love to think that um, even I or meant for yeah. each other, <laughs> but uh, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that's true, and, um, and and we know that relationships can be. Now, the book is about exceptional relationships, hopefully that is with your partner, but we don't say you want an exceptional relationship with everybody, mm. because we need a range of relationships, but we do say Whatever the relationship is, it may be a tennis partner, a person you go on uh, walks with or to the movie with, but any relationship can be deepened. The goal shouldn't be exceptional. The goal should be, is it mutually rewarding? And and one can build relationships. It's easier with some than it is with others. Mm. Sometimes the other person doesn't want to go as deep as you want to go, that you have to accept but maybe later on in a year or so, they are willing to move. So relationships are always dynamic, are always changing, and are something you have more control over than you think. That's
0: very empowering and very positive, I think, especially for people who are struggling. It's been quite a year, obviously, of spending time with our families, what kind of behaviours then should we be encouraging mm-hmm. and what ones should we be avoiding in the home to, to protect those special relationships? I think w-
1: we obviously are always concerned about ourselves. I mean, that's that's us being human and, and that's that's appropriate. I think in these stressful times, that tends to become very much the forefront. Mm. I would want to put in effort to understand the other person. What's going on with them? What's especially hard for them? It may be that I can't resolve that issue, but at least I can show concern and empathy for that person. And that may be all that they need at this point in time. So I think it's uh, focusing in terms of the other person. I think this is also a time in which we may need to double down in our effort mm. to pick up tasks. So, for example, um, during the lockdown, we couldn't use a housekeeper. I had to do more of the housekeeping. That's not my first preference, but it's necessary. Yeah. So we, we talk about what needs to be done to make this a little easier during this time. Mm. But the emphasis on... Both of us need, and what can both of us do? Mm.
0: What are the kind of questions that we can start conversation with? I mean, that the British here are notoriously stiff upper lips and quite closed down, and and not touchy feely to, to use the, the the name of your course at all. So many of us, especially the older generation, and I think you know the kind of the, as far as the nearest thing that we would go is to say, "How are you doing? You know, how how, how is it? How are you feeling?" And, and the standard reply is, "Yep, good." You know, it's kind of, it closes down that conversation. Is there anything that we can be saying? I'm thinking particularly about my older children, my teens, to just try and draw out how they are feeling. And I say to my, my kids, you know, how was your day? Yeah, good, fine. That's it, kind of closed down. It doesn't really lead anywhere. And I'd, <laughs> but, I'd love to be able to tease more out of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, that's a wonderful question. And I uh, as with many of your nicely complicated, um, I think one of the questions. Let's hold the children aside okay. for a minute. And let's talk about friends. I think one of the questions is: To what extent do we dis- disclose? Do we also say, "Yes, I'm fine. That's okay." Yeah, sure. Or do we we'll say, uh, "I'm really feeling stressed. I wonder if you are too." The other thing is, is to what extent do we really hear the other? So I actually have a uh, cousin who lives near Saffron Walden in the UK. So I call up Sarah sometimes. I say, Sarah, how's it going? It's going okay. (laughs) Well, the words say okay, the tone says it's not. Can I say, um, sounds like something's going on. Mm. Does that person know that I... And the question is, do you really want to know? And if you don't want to know, uh, don't ask, because they'll they'll pick that up. But do you really want to know how they are? Now, in terms of children, I sort of kiddingly say, all of this works with everybody, but maybe not with teenagers, because (laughs) that's their own sort of work. But one thing you may want to do is you may want to have a discussion with your teenager mm. and you may want to say, this is what I, la- I want, but I'm also concerned about imposing on you and being intrusive and taking away your privacy. Can we talk about ways mm. that, are there things I can ask that uh, make you want to be a little more open and are there things that I do that close you down? Right. Now, you've got to be willing to hear the answer. Yeah. But you see, the question by itself builds connection, Yeah. builds a tie with it. I can absolutely, totally relate to
0: that. I could imagine, you know, sitting on the bed of one of my teens and having at least saying those words, even if it didn't elicit a conversation, I think they would go away feeling she wants me to be heard. And it may be a little bit further down the line that they may not come back immediately with, oh, I'm so pleased you asked me that because I've been longing to tell you, you know, but over the weeks and months, it kind of gives that permission, doesn't it? to, To start that conversation again, where they might say, actually, do you know what you were talking about the other night? Yes. Yes. And, and then that goes on. Yes, and
1: that gives you some opportunity to go deeper. And um, again, I think the other thing is mm. people want to be understood. And empathy is a great way to, um, to, 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 uh, to get there. So I talked about my granddaughter who, in a sense, in schooling, has this mixed things. Uh, rather than asking how is school, I may want to ask, the, this really sort of is is the pits, as we say. This is, this really must be annoying. And they say, yes, it really is. And I might say, my guess is that it cuts down on the social contact you like. And they might just say yes and walk away, or they may know that you're really trying to understand them. You're trying to be empathic. And again, your goal is not to solve yeah. their problems. Your goal is to make a connection with them.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's such a great goal. And and you talk about connections. And I know, particularly for the younger people in this modern world, we've got hyper connectivity. Do you think that helps or hinders making more meaningful connections? Because they always seem to be on things that I don't understand, like Snapchat and you know, sending pictures that then disappear and you can't see them. It's like, what is all that about? I've got no idea. But they're on it all the time, but they are so ephemeral and so temporary. You know, it, is that meaningful in any way or is that is that helpful or hindering them?
1: Well, it, it's a different way of connecting and I don't fully understand it either and certainly don't use it. Um, and, and I think there's mixed results. I think it gives us more ways to connect. So some people uh, find that an easier way to connect. So my son, who's a computer engineer, fits the stereotype of an engineer of not being very open. And I remember one time he said, I have to talk about feelings again. So that wasn't his, uh, his modality. <laughs> But when he went away to college, we would email and he was actually more open on email than he was over the phone. So for some people, one modality Mm. works better than the other. Now, one of the troubles with media, particularly Facebook and so on, is that our goal to present this wonderful image can be very discouraging for others. And I think there's some research to show that people who are on Facebook a lot tend to be depressed because everybody looks happier and having a better Mm. time than they are. Uh, even though that's a presented image. So I think it's a mixed thing. And the question is, are kids learning how to relate when they're face-to-face or whatever modality works for them to be more personal?
0: I mean, you've been researching this topic for a long time now. I mean, you are one of the leading experts. Is there anything new that you learned while writing the book? Well,
1: (laughs) I have to confess that not infrequently, when Eve and I get a little bit into a spit, she says, You teach this stuff, why don't you practice it? And uh, I have to admit <laughs> that I may have expertise in this, but this is hard stuff. It's hard stuff to be yeah. vulnerable, it's hard stuff to reach out to the other, it's hard to sometimes to say, I'm sorry, I really screwed up. So I, the, the one yeah. thing that I feel optimistic about is that I think that more and more in our society, we are realizing this takes work. It's a Hollywood myth to say they got married and lived happily ever after. The marriage ceremony is a chance to begin to work. Mm. And I think that we people are hopefully starting to realize that, though I think we give up too early. I think we divorce too early. We break up relationships too early. get hooked yeah. into our own pride and our self-righteousness. It's hard work to say, mm. I think I screwed that up. But I think it's a generation starting to see yeah. that's necessary and are, are open to it.
0: Well, I have to say, your book is filled with so many incredibly helpful, wise words and, and practical ways that we can help to make that happen. And that, you know, just the, the subject connect is 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 really what it's all about. What is your research going to head to next? What are you working on now?
1: Well, um, we're we're, we're uh, busy talking about the book on talks like this. So uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to, going to do next. Um, what I'm thinking about is um, my wife was a, uh, her family was a refugee from uh, Czechoslovakia before the war. So we have all sorts of family papers. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to connect with them. Uh, they're all deceased. So she never knew her grandparents. So we're writing, we're translating these letters, we're interpreting them, because we not only want to relate to future generations, we also want to connect with past generations, because that helps us understand who we are. So I think uh, I'm going to be helping her with that.
0: That sounds absolutely amazing. And thank you for that that wonderful reminder, actually, that we need to connect on all levels. It's been a real pleasure to have you here talking and sharing so much. Thank you so much. Well, it's been fascinating
1: and wonderful questions. and I've enjoyed our conversation. So thank you.
0: And that is it for today's episode. Huge thanks to David and his book is called Connect building exceptional relationships with family friends and colleagues and as always you can find all the links and the resources that we talked about over on lizalwellbeing.com there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter it's filled with so many ideas for living well including lots on mental health huge thanks to all who have left such lovely reviews for us it really does help others to find the show so thank you my team and i are hugely grateful until the next next time we chat go well bye bye The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earl, with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.